Hello, and welcome to the 5 by your Quattro weekly source for rapid-fire board game reviews. I'm one of your hosts, Justin Bell. In this episode, Ruel throws the whole book at his review of Books of Time. Jose tries to score with 11 football manager board game. Aaron continues to mystify us all with Mystic Veil, and I'll tell you more about poetry during my review of Sabika. But first, here's Meeple Lady's review of Gollum. It feels like in the past few years, there's been a spate of complex games that have been coming to the market where the entire game takes place over a handful of turns. But within these turns, you're actually making a bunch of different decisions so that your one turn can result in multiple things, a cascading combo of actions. Personally, I'm still on the fence about these types of games. I always just want a few more turns so that I can feel like I'm progressing within the game. And while Golem, which was released in 2021, only has a mere 12 actions in the entire game, it felt like all my actions mattered toward my progress. As long as you stick with one strategy from the get-go and don't try to do everything. Golem is a large game, one that has a lot of table presence that includes a main board, individual player boards, a synagogue board, and a marble tower structure. Designed by Flaminia Brasini, Virginio Gili, and Simone Luciani, Golem is an engine builder that plays in about two hours and is published by Cranio Games. Simone Luciani is a designer whose previous titles include Grand Austria Hotel, Lorenzo Il Magnifico, and Barrage. And there are elements in Golem that feel reminiscent of Grand Austria Hotel, especially in its action selection mechanism. For those unfamiliar, a Golem is a creature formed out of a lifeless substance such as dust or earth that is brought to life by ritual incantations and sequences of Hebrew letters. In Golem the board game, you're using your knowledge to study books, collect artifacts, and create columns to send them to the city to do important jobs. At the start of the round, Marbles are poured into the marble tower, and they randomly fall out in columns that correspond to a certain action, and golems move along a track based on the round card. The game plays through four rounds, with each round, players taking three turns each. On two of your turns, you select a marble from one of the columns, and for your third, you place the rabbi on the synagogue board, which gives you an action, but also determines your turn order for the next round. The order of these three actions do not matter, so three actions per round totals to 12 actions for the game. Before we go into a generalized explanation of the actions, let's go back to our player boards. On your player board, there are essentially three development tracks that you're moving up on. Knowledge, golems, and artifacts. As you take your turns, you can upgrade items on these tracks, which will net more income each round, and more importantly, multipliers for victory points you're collecting. Like I said in the beginning, there's no way you can advance substantially in all three of these tracks. You'll need to pick one strategy to make it worth your while. Meanwhile, the main board also essentially has three different tracks where players' golems and students advance. The board also holds book cards that players can purchase with knowledge and keep on their player board, potentially maximizing each knowledge turn. It also holds round bonuses for the game. At the start of your turn, if you choose to pick a marble, you select one and do the actions corresponding with that column. The strength of the action depends on how many marbles are in the column when you select it. 
Also, when you pick a marble of the same color as one of the tracks on the main board, you move your student ahead on that track. When you pick a white marble, move no students. And when you pick a black marble, pick two different students. Actions include paying to upgrade your board with various resources, putting your golem to work, creating a golem, taking coins, or buying book cards. Plus, depending on which marbles you pick for the round, you may be able to satisfy end-of-round objectives for even more actions. Ultimately, there are multiple ways to score victory points. Working your golems, performing actions with your rabbi, buying specific book cards, completing artifacts, and collecting income during each round. As you uncover more menorahs on your player board through upgrades, this multiplies the victory points you've achieved on the track that the menorah is located in. Golem is full of tough decisions. From choosing a specific color marble, from picking which actions you want to do, from choosing how to upgrade your player board, all the way to putting your golems to work and or killing them. If the golems get too far ahead from the student on the same track, which is often because they move each round, you'll have to pay knowledge points or suffer penalties. The theme is based in Jewish tradition, and while it was interesting to learn about the golem folklore from the rulebook, it feels like this just could have been themed about anything, which is typical for many crunchy euros. And while you only have 12 actions per game, each game of Golem is very different. During setup, the game only uses 7 of the 10 action tiles on the main board, and players can draft for starting resources. It's a crunchy euro that gives you so much to do on your turn if you make strategic decisions. And that's Golem. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Threads, and TikTok or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye! Humankind's advances in technology, science, and industry have been recorded in written form throughout the ages. You and your opponents are history's scribes, each creating books with details of our progress and achievements. Will you be the one to write the finest narrative of civilization? Hi friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. On the table is Books of Time, a game by Philip Glowatz with art by Zbigniew Mgelter and Alexander Zawada. Books of Time was published in 2023 by Board and Dice, who sent me a copy for a sponsored livestream on my Twitch channel. In Books of Time, one to four players build three books to record advances in technology, science, and industry. On your turn, you'll choose one of six actions to add a page to your player board, advance up a track on the civilization board, write a page by adding it to one of your three books, activate a page in your book, turn pages in your book, or close your books. All of these actions give you resources, victory points, or more actions, depending on how you've configured your books. At the end of each round, there's an event phase as you turn the page of the Chronicle and follow its directions. When the Chronicle has been closed, the game is over, points are tallied, and the winner is declared. There was almost no way I wasn't going to like Books of Time. I mean, come on, a tableau building game about writing books? My fellow word nerds understand when I say, yes, may I have another. As a lifelong bookworm, any book-themed game immediately grabs my attention. From the puzzly worker placement of Ex Libris to the brilliant deck building in paperback, it tickles me to no end that books as a board game theme work so well. Books of Time takes its theme to the next level by actually having you physically build books. Using little two-ring binders to hold pages of actions was a brilliant design choice, but it's more than just a gimmick. It adds to the puzzle of the game as you try to figure out where you should place pages to reach peak efficiency with your actions.
Board and Dice has now published three games that I absolutely love because of where they fit in the company's catalog. Books of Time, Zopotec, and Founders of Teotihuacan, which is also by Books of Time designer Philip Glowatz. They all offer an outstanding next step or gateway plus gaming experience. These three games are much lighter than Board and Dice's games in the T-series, but for me, these may be more satisfying. Why? Because these games play breezily, usually 45 to 75 minutes each, while still offering a touch of brain burn. Players looking for a bit more depth in their games would do well by picking up one of these three. Books of Time is lighter than Founders of Teotihuacan and Zapotec, but just as enjoyable. The theme is more baked into the mechanisms, and teaching the game is much easier. And in this sense, Books of Time reminded me of another tableau builder that I played recently. Let's Go to Japan by Josh Wood. Both of these are excellent tableau builders that deliver a satisfying blend of theme and mechanism. In Let's Go to Japan, you build a week-long travel itinerary as you draft cards into your calendar. In Books of Time, you construct books that contain your actions that you'll use to expand your books, complete objectives, and advance up the civilization board. Like Let's Go to Japan, Books of Time uses drafting and tableau building as a means to dive deep into its theme. You'll have to choose when to turn pages in your books, trying to time your actions just right. Or do you close your books in order to get back to an action on an earlier page for your next turn? I love the tension of moving up the civilization track, trying to earn enough resources to cash in on the topmost scoring conditions, while also figuring out how I'm going to complete my personal objectives. This is the type of balancing act that I enjoy in games. There aren't enough actions or turns to do everything I want, and that's fine by me. Books of Time is a wonderful game of tableau building, card drafting, resource management, and objective fulfillment with a fun race up a bunch of civilization tracks. In another designer's hands, this may have been a much longer and perhaps more complex game, but thankfully Books of Time offers a pleasing 45 to 60 minutes of writing the story of humankind using a fun gimmick that never outstays its welcome. Thanks to Board and Dice for the copy of Books of Time. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5x. Thanks for listening. Find me on social media at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. As I'm writing this segment, it's actually not long after the Nations League Finals where the men's U.S. soccer team just won the title. USA. 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 But watching the games reminded me of my time with this next game. 11 football manager board game for one to four managers who are going to engage in a heavy economic simulation designed by Thomas Jensen and published by Portal Games. There's about eight different decks of cards that you need to shuffle and organize into a market area. These cards are things like players, rookies, sponsors, and staff. And do you like bits? This game has so many bits. All the bits. And then each player gets a player board. No, I'm sorry, two boards. No, wait. You each get three player boards, one to represent your stadium and its an, an amenities. Amenities? Amenities? Anonymities? You know what I'm talking about. One board for staffing and tracking purposes, and the last board to simulate a football match. And then you set up the league's ranking board, and you track players and NPC teams for the league, and then the game also comes with five other scenarios that you can try, each with their own special setup and rules. And now you're ready to play. The game is played over six quote-unquote weeks, which is basically a round, which is broken up into days during the week, 
you will do things like resolve events, take actions to expand your team and staff, and at the end of the week, you're going to resolve a football match. The game ends after about six weeks. You count up your points based on your goals, icons on your boards, tokens, and scenario goals, and your standing in the league. Now, first things first, I have to make this very clear. Eleven isn't a game about playing football. It's an economic sim. You're managing resources in order to funnel them into a better team that will get you victory points, which can change between scenarios and personal goal cards. I want to like this game more than I do. I don't think it's a bad game, but I think the game needs just a little bit more finesse, a little more streamlining. Once you understand how the game is played as a whole, it's not so bad, but initially learning the game and teaching this game can be a bear to those who have never played it or have no experience with soccer. Now, while having knowledge of soccer or football isn't needed to play the game, it does kind of help when you're simulating the matches. And before I get to the cons, I do want to point out that I think the game does have a lot of positive points. There's tons of replayability in this game with the different setups. There's tons of expansions that add more variety. I appreciate the art in the game. The art is well done. A lot of the initial trainer cards can be either male or female trainers. The board meeting event cards all felt very thematic, and they offer each player's mini challenges for every week. There's tons of theme, even though this is a simulation Euro. Solo mode is also very solid. It doesn't add on its any new rules. But let's get to the cons. This game is the definition of a table hog. I'm pretty sure you need an entire soccer pitch in order to play four players. If you play this game with others, you're going to need a huge table to balance out all the markets, all the player boards, the league standings, and everything else that you need to keep track of. And this is going to lead me to what I think is the biggest con of the game. Unfortunately, it's the game day. Game days are kind of fiddly and hard to teach and understand. They're very abstracted, and I get what they were trying to do, and for what it is, it's really cool, but it almost feels like its own little mini-game, which normally I would like, but it's a little too much for this game when you have to balance out a whole other Euro outside of this phase. It's not intuitive... It's the wording is a little weird, and there's a lot of little things that you have to remember that aren't really specified in one solid place in the rule book. I think if this mode or this part of the game had one more pass through to make it more streamlined and easy to understand and play through, this game would be a knockout for sure. Also, this game is kind of a time commitment. My first player, my first time playing this game was a two-player game, and we clocked in at about four hours long. I played it again with three or four, and it stayed about that same length of time, maybe a little bit more. I can see this game moving a lot quicker if you know the rules already, or if you're playing solo, it actually does play in under two hours or so. But that's probably the minimum amount of time you're looking at if you're going to play this game. The last thing I'm going to say about this game is kind of in the middle. It's not a pro or a con, but this game is very much multiplayer solitaire. I'm not a huge fan of that kind of game, but it does make for a good solo experience, and sometimes when the puzzle is nice and crunchy, I do like that sort of game. The cons are big enough in this game to stop me from wholeheartedly, that's a word, recommending this game to you, but 
If you're into the theme and you don't mind long, slightly fiddly games, I think you're going to have a great time with this game. My name is Jose. You can find me on Instagram at SirBearsworth and on Twitter at SirBearsworth1. Come on by, say hi, let me know what you've been playing. Hey, it's Aaron from GameEnthuse.com. For this episode of The Five By, we're talking about large-scale games. Now, obviously, large is relative, and I guess it could be argued that scale is also somewhat relative. As I do have an unfortunate history of regularly missing the point, hopefully this is not one of those times. Anyway, the game that came to mind for me was a game that really pushed me further into the quicksand that is the proverbial quicksand that is hobbyist board games. That game is a deck builder but it's also a card crafting game. And that game is Mystic Veil. Vale. Mystic Veil vale was designed by John D. Clare, released in 2016 with art from a wide variety of artists and was published by AEG, also known as Alderac Entertainment Group. I'm primarily focused on the base game, which is two to four players, but there are expansions that lower it down to solo mode and I think raise the player count up to five or six. So to make a long story short, there's a Wicked King who is dying and he really wants the Druids of Gaia to heal him. And they know if they heal him, he's going to get better and be awful. The Wicked King dies. Before he dies, of course, he curses the entire land in typical scorched earth fashion, thus making it hard for the Druids of Gaia to tap into the magic and mysticness or what have you of the environment. I realize I could have said mysticism, but saying mysticness just felt right and wrong, but more right, if that makes sense. So as I mentioned earlier, Mystic Veil vale is a deck building game. Every player is going to start off with 20 cards. Nine are going to be cursed lands. Three are going to be fertile soil and eight are going to be blank. And they're going to be blank because you're going to be card crafting. Each card, advancement card, has three sections, an upper, middle, and lower. To go along with the theme of the Wicked King cursing the land, the Fertile Soil cards, you only have three of them at the beginning of the game, just offer a mana point. And mana point is the currency by which you want to buy other advancement cards, level one, level twos, and level threes. Your starting cards, be they Cursed Lands or Fertile Soil, are going to offer those benefits slash detractors in one of the sections, top, middle, or bottom. So you're still going to be crafting on those cards in addition to the blank cards that you can fill with basically anything. So the Fertile Soil is just money to acquire more cards. You just get money in one of the sections, one of the three, top, middle, bottom. The Cursed Lands also offer money, but they also have a red curse token. And on your turn or in between turns, you are going to be flipping out cards in front of you until you have three of those red tokens face up. Now, the card that's on deck is a card that isn't out yet, meaning it's not in play, but any curse on that card also counts towards your three. And you stop at three because three is as much as you can sustain without spoiling. There's also a push your luck element to the game where if you continue to pull out cards from your deck, once you've gone past the three curse token limit, you spoil your turn ends immediately and it's off to the next player. So you have to be careful about when you decide to press your luck. Everything I've been describing about pushing out the cards till you hit your, your three decay uh, limit, 
the red icon is all the planting phase. Don't ask me how I know. Here's a tip. No matter how many blue VP tokens a card has, it's genuinely not a good idea to craft a card with more than one decay because that can get you into trouble. Anyway, that is the planting phase. Once you've planted and you're satisfied with what you have, because you can't mitigate decay. You can't have cards that can take away decay that's already come out. So you can keep going until you, you know, you hit three. If you're done pushing your luck, then you go into the harvest phase. And the harvest when you count up all the blue mana icons and all the cards that have come out, and that's how much money you have to spend on advancement cards. You're going to spend that money and what you're doing is you're going to buy an advancement and then slide that into the sleeve of an applicable card. Thus, continue to craft cards. In addition to the mana, decay, and bloom. Bloom mitigate. Bloom is green, which mitigates the decay. I don't know if I mentioned bloom already. There's also spirit symbols. I think there's four or five of those. And depending on how many of those you have amongst all the cards you planted, you can also get veil cards. The veil cards will offer even more ways to get gray VP points, not the blue ones that you score every time they come out and you plant them, but you just get them at the end of their, their end game scoring. So grays are good, but blues can come out every time and score continually. But you can get veil cards, which allow you to still mitigate spoiling. Some of them say, hey, if you spoil, discard this card, keep playing. There's all types of different fail cards. There's a lot there. Uh, this is the first deck, but I really like sunk my teeth into it. Really started like digging and getting the expansions and, and everything. It just, I don't know. I was singing this game's praises for a long time, years after it already came out, but I didn't care because I liked it that much. Anyway, the only real detractor to this game is just having to empty out all those sleeves with one to three different cards in them. It could be kind of a lot to put away. So if it sounds like it's a lot for you, I would recommend the digital version of Mystic Veil, which is available on Nintendo Switch, Steam, and mobile platforms. Anyway, I'm Aaron from GameOfThews.com, happily wearing my 5 by Games hat. Thank you for listening. Take care, stay safe, and be blessed. Hey gang, Justin Bell here with the 5 by. Our leadership team informs me that the topic for this month's podcast is large-scale games. If we are talking about games that eat the entire table, and I mean the entire table, the biggest game I tried to put on my table that we haven't reviewed in our previous 136 episodes is last year's Rondell worker placement game, Sabika. Our friends at Asmodee provided a review copy. Sabika is a big piece of chicken, both in terms of its table-sized footprint and the decision-making required to play the game well. Serving as a noble tasked with the construction of the Alhambra, during the Nasrid dynasty, which is the 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries, players have to manage a boatload of different activities across three different rondelle tracks in the center of the board. This is the best part about the game. You've got three different rondelles, one with eight spaces for building actions, one rondelle with six spaces for trading actions, and one with six different spaces for... poetry? Yes, that record scratch you just played in your head was real. In one of the bigger stretches I've ever seen in a Euro game design, poetry is the mechanism for which you'll acquire ongoing, one-time, and end-game bonuses, while also using some of those poetry spaces simply to make a quick buck. Don't worry, though. You won't have to write any real poetry here, which is good, because I'm a decent writer, but a terrible poet. Let's talk about cash for a moment. Money is in Sabika is really tight. Like, tight-tight. Occasionally, you'll find yourself with 10 dinars, Sabika's currency, and pump your fist to no one in particular. Cash is tight, and then it gets tighter because if you want to visit a space where any other players have workers, 
you've got to pay each of them one dinar. The decision space in Sabika is fantastic because every move forces interesting choices. I know I need to build more major buildings, which advance one of my markers up a track to get additional bonuses, but I don't want to pay Sarah or Ruel any money. So what do I do? The trading actions provide more choices, more bonuses, and more racing to get tokens before your opponents. All this action takes place over a mere 20 turns. Sabika is really heavy in that way, the way that strategy gamers love. How do I make a plan before the game even begins on the best route to take? How do I pivot when other players foil my plans and limited funds lead to limited placements on the rondelle? I haven't even told you everything going on in Sabika. Sure, you've got major buildings, which drive small mid-game scoring bonuses thanks to a set collection element. Minor buildings give players a chance to build a small tableau near their player boards, which in turn leads to extra actions. You've got warehouse tiles used to store all the stuff you need to buy from the market to build those major and minor buildings. And there is a two-tier element to the scoring. Like in most games, you'll score points for the construction of a building. In other games, like the Red Cathedral, which also has a rondelle. But you'll also score points for just spending the resources to build every building, with more points awarded for using better materials. In this way, Sabika allows for overbuilding each property. Some of the players I've shown Sabika have literally licked their chops when they saw that this was a possibility. So, Sabika. There's a lot there. And as you would expect, from a game with this much going on, it takes up just as much table space as the figurative brain space Sabika takes up during each play. The trifold main board is massive. One downside, you've got to read a lot of text in Sabika. So if you're sitting too far away from the cards, you'll regularly have to stand up and move to a different part of the table to read it all. Everyone has a player board. That player board accommodates small cards that can be tiled off of either side of their player boards to show current ongoing powers and available one-time bonuses that can be triggered again using a space on the poetry track. You've got that area near your player board where your minor building tableau is being built. Plus, you've got major building tiles that show other players what sets you are currently collecting. Oh my goodness, it's a lot. But if you like heavy strategy games and have a big play space, please give Sabika a look. For more of my tabletop content, check out my profile at www.meeplemountain.com. You can also find me on Instagram, Twitter, and threads. Yes, threads. At Justin Bell Says. That's J-U-S-T-I-N-B-E-L-L-S-A-Y-S. Thanks for listening. Now get out there and roll some dice. You've been listening to The Five By, your monthly source for board game reviews. Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild 2810. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts from. And check out our website at 5 bygamescom If you like what we do and would like to support our work, visit our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash 5 by Games. As always, thank you for listening. For more shows like this, check out the Goonhammer Media Network. More info at media.goonhammer.com.